Good evening and welcome to the LSE. My name is Ricky Burdett and I'm a professor of urban studies in the Department of Sociology. And on behalf of many of my colleagues who are here, and Craig Cahoon, the director, who's unfortunately not here because he's raising money <laughs> elsewhere, uh, he would have loved to be here because effectively this is a special evening for uh, many of us at the LSE to welcome back such a close friend and colleague, both personally, I have to say, and of the school, uh, Saskia Sassen. Uh, Sasia is going to be talking about her new book, Expulsions, Brutality and Complexity in the Global Economy. And we'll hear her in a moment uh, talk about some of the key ideas in that book. Saskia has been a friend of the school really for, I have to say, decades. In fact, probably she was here before I was involved. Uh, I joined and, uh, with a number of people who are here, set up LSE Cities and the Urban Age with someone called Richard Sennett, who I think Saskia knows quite well because it's her husband. Um, and Richard, Saskia, and I, and many others uh, worked on this program on cities, which still continues uh, today. Uh, but tonight, my role is actually to act as MC, Master of Ceremonies, and that's it, because the field and the subjects that have been talked about today go far wider than cities, even though they do impact on cities. And that's why I'm delighted that we have someone else here who's also a close friend, a newer friend, Professor Ash Amin from the University of Cambridge, uh, to actually act as a respondent, as a discussant uh, with Saskia, or simply because Ash for years has dealt with many of the same issues, sometimes at a different scale and different geographies, but very much touching upon the issues of the cultural economy, knowledge, power, and dislocations. These are the big themes of the book and the work they have both done. I mean, for me, these are two of the most fertile and provocative brains I know, so it's a fantastic occasion to be here and sort of stand back and sit and hear. Now, let me tell you what the logistics of the evening are. Saskia will speak for about 35, 40 minutes. Uh, Ash will then respond with some comments, some thoughts, really some provocations, some ideas which have come out from uh, reading the book and really for, uh, dialoguing with Saskia for a number of years now. Uh, and actually ask her some questions um, and, and sort of pull out some of the themes uh, in the book that interests him. If we have time, because with these two you just don't know, um, uh, you guys get a chance to speak too. But we'll, we'll have to judge that. The most important thing is that we are here, frankly, to celebrate, promote, and enjoy this book. Right? And therefore, at 8 o'clock, Saskia will walk up there, so we have to part the seas and let her through, um, and uh, be able to sign books, and hopefully you may buy some, um, and the, the facilities are there. And I want to thank Harvard Press for actually uh, not only making this occasion possible by also sponsoring the drinks, and you're all welcome to join us for that upstairs and talk to Saskia about what she said, and perhaps, as I've said, buy the book. Um, Saskia is well-known, and I'm not going to through, go through the life um, History, But there are a few things I do want to just um, single out. She's the Robert S. Lynn Professor at Columbia University, where she co-chairs what I think is one of the most interesting institutions, sort of think tanks, do tanks in a way, also around the world, which is the Committee for Global Thought, which she co-chairs with the Nobel Laureate uh, Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, and what is interesting about that particular institution, that it's really an interdisciplinary initiative, which has been trying and does develop concepts, methods to understand globalization Aspires and interpret globalization. To. 
Inspires to. Aspires yeah. to. No. This is someone who's not just good at one language. She's good at five languages. Uh, and uh, she'll correct you if you maybe make a mistake in any language. English. Yeah, you see, here we go. You now understand what I mean about the, the ongoing discourse. Now, uh, this investigation or this aspiration, as you put it, towards understanding uh, the, the concepts and methods of globalization is really what has informed, I think, uh, her life project, her intellectual project, which really goes through uh, a number of different books and different research projects, which go from the canonical global city work uh, to more recent work on territories, on authority and rights, and, of course, this uh, work, which leads the work uh, to the publication that we're celebrating tonight. What I think is um, fascinating, that's why so many of you are here and so many of you from different backgrounds and disciplines are here, is that she's fundamentally always been interested in one or two big things. She's interested in disruptions, in dislocations, the intersections of multiple systems. I think these are words and concepts that we will hear tonight. But ultimately, what interests so many of us here on the ground, that as a sociologist, you're interested in what happens to people. And whether that's in mining villages in Siberia or subprime mortgage victims in suburban America, that's where you really want to touch the pain and feel the pain. I think that's why your work and her work resonates uh, with us. In this sense, I think Saskia is a real pure researcher but also a theorist who looks at the evidence, understands the evidence, and then stands back and theorizes. In order to do this, she needs to get around a bit. And if her husband, Richard, were here, he would, you know, say something which is probably not true, but it sounds possibly true, that she's never in one city for more than three days a week. Uh, just look at the bibliography and the places she refers to in the back of the book, and you'll see what I mean. So she is informed by a truly global perspective. It's not only in the title of her books, but in, really in the knowledge base of what she does. Apart from her um, purely academic uh, accomplishments, I just want to single out one prize, which is the Asturias Prize, given by the King and Queen of Spain, which she received last year. Now, in, her, in the field of social science, just in the field of social science, there are one or two people who received that prize in the past, which resonate with this institution, but also with uh, many of the ideas that are espoused. Tony Giddens, our former director, Ralph Darendorf, our former director, Paul Krugman, and many others. But interestingly, this prize also extends to the arts, the humanities, and other disciplines. So Philip Roth, um, Frank Gehry, and Bob Dylan got this prize. So she's in pretty good company. And Woody Allen. So, <laughs> so what we have tonight is an exposure to some of her uh, more recent thinking. Uh, I've mentioned that she's written you know, numerous books translated in 20 languages. And her work doesn't stop in academic books or academic journals. Uh, she's been very active and involved in uh, newspapers or publications like Huffington Post, New York Times, The Guardian. Um, and it was interesting to hear her talk only two weeks ago in the BBC Radio 4 program, Start the Week, where I quote, she said that actually what interests her in this book is discovering what happens in the shadows of extreme conditions, not what's obvious, but making in many ways, and this is what the work has been about, making the invisible visible. And that's what the talk on expulsions will be about. Welcome, Saskia Sasson.
Well, Ricky, thank you so much for that most generous of introductions. You're always um, exceptionally caring in your introductions. I also want to thank everybody from LSE who helped organize this. Um, and I want to thank my editor, Ian Malcolm, who must be sitting somewhere here. Maybe he is doing telephone calls outside with other authors. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you can tell him that, by the way, if I said that. But uh, he really has been my editor also when I was at Princeton, and then he recruited me to Harvard with him. Um, so, but he's really an exceptionally supportive wonderful person. What I want to talk about is indeed what Ricky said, which are some of these extreme conditions that we're confronting today, which make me think that the language of simply more, more inequality, more environmental destruction, more etc., etc., at some point is insufficient. And at that point, we do need a bit of analytic courage, not even a lot, I would say, to begin to think about new categories for capturing, for measuring, for interpreting, for explaining. So I use this term expulsions, which is not exclusion. I think of exclusions, social exclusion, a very common term nowadays, that happens inside a system. I'm interested in something in processes that cross what I think of as a systemic edge. Now, that systemic edge is partly my decision to say, at this point, more inequality, more environmental destruction are not simply any more, more of the same. So, for instance, just taking the environment. Up to 30 years ago, the biosphere, with a bit of time on her side, was able to heal and to sort of recover that which we had more or less killed. Today, she's not. We are at some other side of an edge. Today, we really have a scale up with vast stretches of dead land, vast stretches of dead water. She can no longer heal all the messes that we make. Same thing in the in the social situation. What are we really measuring? Just thinking about the UK now, which is a mild case in some ways, what, do we really, what are we really measuring when we say that the UK economy might enter, uh, might achieve 2.9% economic growth? I mean, that mean, what that leaves out is that 80% of the jobs that were added are low-wage jobs, and that many people, many more than got jobs, are out, and they're completely out. Or when the, monetary, the International Monetary Fund and the European Central Bank declare in January of 13, a year ago, more than a year ago, Greece is back on track. There is recovery happening. It's slow, but it's happening. And uh, the credit rating agency Moody's upgrades Greek debt. What are they talking about? Those pronouncements can also be, be, only be made because they leave out 30% of Greek workers who were once employed and now are completely out. They leave out those little shop owners and little farm owners who committed suicide and did not declare bankruptcy before they committed suicide. 
So they're not counted. That's not counted. If they would have declared bankruptcy, not that I'm asking them to do that, you know, that's clearly suicide is a severe, uh, severe decision, they would be counted. But if they don't, it's not counted. Not to mention abandoned places, destroyed localities, thinned out local economies. So my, my effort in this book has really been to contest the kind of way in which we are describing the current condition. And so I want to sort of run you through a whole bunch of these um, types of, of sort of conditions. In the book, I, I deal with, uh, with, a whole, with a whole range of conditions. Here I'm just going to limit myself to economic issues and then issues of the environment very briefly towards the end. Though the chapter on the environment is actually the one that I gave the most time, the most effort, it is also the newest work for me. Now, first, a minute on method. When I, um, when I do this kind of research, I need a zone that I call the zone before method, which is a space sort of, of freedom where I can do what I want to do in terms of how I position myself vis-a-vis -vis the object of study. And in some ways, it harkens back something wrong, I just think the light's slightly Oh, they are nicely dimmed right now, I would say. Maybe? Oh, yeah, I would say, or do we really want it a media luz, as we might say in Spanish? A media luz, Okay, so, so um, this before method zone makes, reminds me, makes me think, of course, of Kafka in front of the law. It's either the zone of fear because the law is about to come down on top of your head. Or it is the zone of a kind of epistemic indignation. That is not the language that Kafka uses. He uses much better words. But, but you know what I mean? It's not that you are beating your chest. In, no, in indignation. It's mental. This explanation is not, uh, uh, does not work for me. You know, that kind of. And I, find, I have found myself, given the research that I like to do and given the social sciences within which I function, so you always have to go back down to that disciplining moment that is method, I need that space of freedom, and that's my before method. And within that, I sort of, um, I have several analytic tactics, which are really quite simple. They sound actually a bit more simple than they are, but, but still, they're not that complicated. But the first one is in a period at a time when stabilized meaning, and no meaning is, of course, stable forever, but meanings acquire a certain kind of stability over a certain period of time. I'm talking about complex meanings, the economy, the middle classes, the national state, immigration, poverty, etc., etc. Uh, but this is an unstable. This is a period that is destabilizing a lot of this. So then I argue we actually cannot simply use those categories, the economy, the middle classes. Just think, what do they actually mean? Further... We need to actively destabilize them in order to revisit them, if you want. A second one is, again, with powerful explanations. A powerful explanation, you can't just throw it out of the window if you don't like it. Uh, because it has withstood the test of time, the test of debates, disagreements, etc., and there it is. But what you can do is ask, what don't I see when I invoke this powerful explanation? What is in the shadows, in the penumbra, of that very powerful explanation? And that's a bit, again, the zone where I'm doing the research in this, 
in, for this book. The third one is a bit more, more, more complex, but I'm really keen on recovering analytically, in other words, making it work analytically, the category that is territory. Territory is not land, it's not space, it's not terrain, it's not ground. It's actually a mix. Sure, there is terrain, ground, etc., but it is also it also has within it uh, uh, complex logics of power, which in our Western modernity become the state, the liberal state, uh, and complex logics of claim making, which are in our Western modernity become citizenship, probably in its most achieved form, if you want. And so, what what can I see? when I make territory, that complex category, work analytically. Because right now, it has one meaning, national sovereign territory. And if it has one meaning, it is not working analytically. So I want to make it work analytically. And then finally, the approach that I take is something that, that really tries to understand how is it made, the making of it all. Now, it is a partial approach because there are trajectories of meaning, inherited genealogies of meaning, etc., etc. But it's, it serves my purposes. So I'm really keen on understanding how have we made this added inequality that we experience today in more and more countries? How have we made the extreme concentration of wealth at the top? Rather than thinking that somehow, you know, these are vague trends, no, it was made. Again, I repeat, it's a partial approach. Uh, so, for instance, one of the issues that I raise in the book is that it is not enough for us to focus and develop a critique of these very powerful elites that are increasingly rich, increasingly powerful, increasingly disconnected from larger sort of socioeconomic projects because we're actually dealing with predatory formations that include technical networks, sure very powerful elites, pieces of law, pieces of accounting, a whole set of elements that go well beyond elites. If only it were just elites that we need to put aside if we were going to change this system. I don't think that is enough. So again, in that sense, you know, the, the making of that capacity to produce the kind of economic and social system that we have. Now again, I want to remind you where I started. I'm interested in the extreme condition. Most of us are enjoying sitting in this beautiful auditorium. Most of us keep on living our lives. I'm interested in the edge, the extreme edge. So it is a very partial account. It does not cover you know, all the stuff that is functioning as normal. You will all get your degrees at LSE, don't worry. You know, it's not a cataclysm that is about to hit. Uh, but if that extreme condition crosses an edge, that systemic edge that I'm talking about. <clears throat> and in that process, and again, this is my second assumption, the first assumption is that these systemic edges exist. Again, it takes a bit of conceptual courage. There it is. The second one, that the moment of the systemic edge is when it becomes most visible, and in that moment, once it crosses, it disappears. It, be, it, no, it doesn't disappear, but it becomes 
less visible, more difficult to see. So that then creates a kind of, if you want, methodological challenge, which is you know, one of the issues that, I'm, that I deal with in this book. Now, let me start with this type of question. What is the steam engine of our epoch? And I'm giving you, while I breathe in, I'm giving you a second to get a sort of a vague answer in your head. Mostly people, when I get a chance to ask him, I won't ask you now today, huh? but mostly people will say it's information technologies. They are certainly very powerful. They are present everywhere. They are not, they cannot be confined to one sector. But I want to make another argument. And I'm not saying that it's the better argument, but that's the argument I want to make right now. And to argue that it is finance, not banking. And here I I want to make a clear distinction. Traditional banking, and I want, before I do that, I want to say that we all need loans, so I'm not against loans. An economy needs loans, national states need loans, middle-class families need loans, a person wants to buy one. So it's not about loans. It's not about that kind of thing. So traditional banks, you know, especially when they're small and local and recirculate whatever interest one pays, they're actually very fine. They're very important. I try to make a distinction. So one argument, one way of making that distinction is that the traditional bank sells money it has. The financial firm does something else. It sells something it does not have, basically. And in that selling what it does not have lies its creativity, it has to invent instruments, and lies its danger, because it has to invade other sectors, which become the grist for its mill. Now, these are very extreme versions that I'm giving you, both of the traditional bank and of the financial firm. But when I say, what is the steam engine of our epoch? I think finance, as capability, can be present everywhere, directly or indirectly, because it needs to invade other sectors. So I'm talking about very, very creative financing, if you want. Now, let me give you one example here. And this is just one particular instrument. And I just want you to look at the curve. I hope this is visible. This is 201. This is less than a trillion. You know trillion, right? Many zeros. Anyhow, less than a trillion. (laughs) And this, six years later, is 62 trillion. Now, think what has that growth rate. What can grow that way? Maybe some of you are very kind of dead, but then you would absolutely really after astounding. This is an extraordinary rate of increase. Second point, just to give you a sense of what I mean. Can people hear me if I move slightly away from the microphone? Yes? Um, so the second point is that these 62 trillion in 207, which is when the crisis also begins, is actually at that point already more than global GDP. Global GDP being the measure of all the sort of, you know, the, the typical measure for economies and measuring mostly actually actual economic inputs. There are many troubles with that measure, but anyhow, it's a reasonable measure, let's put it for now at least. Plus, these 62 trillion 
which are more than global GDP, are only 10% of total value of finance as measured by outstanding derivatives, which is over 600 trillion. Now, there is a very interesting debate in the world going on. I don't know if in the whole world, but in many places it's... um, Which is, do we actually know how much money, I'm talking money, you know, the old-fashioned stuff, actual money, how much money exists in the world. We do not have a perfect measure of that. Because forever, you know, there's a bit of inflation here, a little less there, some printing of new money, you know, etc. And then, then you have the currency markets altering the values. But we do know that at that time, and about a year ago, when this glo- the global value of finance, as measured by outstanding derivatives, reached quadrillion, think more zeros even than trillion, okay? So it's a very long line of zeros, that that amount of money did not exist. So this is just a way of suggesting a couple of things. One, finance as capability. If you just look at it as money, you're missing something. Moreover, those 62 trillion lost like 30 trillion in a, very, very quickly when the crisis begins to happen and there is a on top of that, a crisis of confidence. I don't want to go into the details of the instrument. But these are, we measure it in money, but we don't know exactly what we're measuring. Now, another, another uh, version of that are the black pool, the dark pools. Now, mind you, this is not my language. Yes, you have figured out that I'm probably a bit of a lefty, whatever. But <laughs> that is the language used by the head of the central bank in New York, the Fed, as we call it, the Fed. Bernanke, he's no longer, but you know, when he said it, he was. He said, we don't really know how many dark pools there are in the United States. And there you have it for the United States and for Europe. Now, these are extraordinary sites that we don't know exactly what happens in them. There are many banks that want to access some of these dark pools, and they can't. They're very close. They are closed trading systems. So that is another way in which you can think of finance as capability, that it can sort of produce its own invented production site, those dark pools, and produce value. It's, trans is a kind of transactivity. It circulates buy, buy, sell, buy, sell. You get, you lose, whatever. So when you begin to think about that, about it that way, and it is present everywhere. It, we have financialized student loans. We have financialized used car loans. So in that sense, finance as capability, finance as the steam engine of our epoch. Now, the steam engine of, you know, two centuries ago was both benign and not so benign. It was present directly and present indirectly in many other places. Now, I want to take one of my extreme cases, and Ricky already alluded to it. And sort of the framing is when modest neighborhoods, I'm precisely not saying the global city, I'm saying modest neighborhoods, the neighborhood being something that is always a bit, I don't know, out there, huh? it's not at the center when modest neighborhoods become part of global finance. When that happens, some very bad things happen too, by the way. But what I want to emphasize is sort of this notion that this incredibly complex form of knowledge can actually engage and extract value from something that is actually a very modest value. 
To do that, however, it needs an enormous set of complex intermediations. So I love to say that the back room, you know the back room in, a, in an office, which is historically was the place for the secretaries. Well, the back room of Goldman Sachs, that's just one, I could mention any other, is full of physicists. Because the math that you need is not the math of microeconomics, if only the math of microeconomics is like like child, uh, kindergarten math compared to the math. Because the physicists know how to construct instruments that allow you to sort of track and create some version of what you cannot know. So when each of these financial firms creates these algorithms, throws them into the electronic markets, they don't know exactly what is going to happen. But, you know, there is an approximation. So it, they are really brilliant forms of knowledge. Too bad that they have really produced a few devastating effects, right? So here is an irony, and this, by the way, is one of the tensions that runs through this book, how very complex forms of knowledge that we admire and respect. Think, for instance, um, well, let me finish that sentence first, how these forms of knowledge so often produce simple brutalities, not even grand brutalities, simple Things. So in this case, modest homes in modest neighborhoods get wiped out. I mean, the people who sit in, you know, foreclosures, etc. Foreclosures is the language. And, and think of fracking. Incredibly complex forms of knowledge. A hydraulic fracturing, you know what I'm talking about. That It's been in the news lately here. Uh, you know, chemistry, geology, you name it. To do that. To do What? to produce devastated land, devastated water. So this is also one of the tensions for me that runs through this book, I repeat. Now, the, the, the challenge here was how do you de-link that modest house from uh, the instrument that you're going to create for the high investment circuit? A dear friend of mine, a colleague at Columbia, Patrick Bolton, who is an economist, he decoded, I mean, it's known, it's not, this is not secret knowledge, but he showed me, took 16 steps. That was what the physicists, partly that was what the physicists were working on. So the challenge was you create an instrument that has an asset, actually a material asset, a little house, backing it, but that house has such low value that you've got to disappear it expel it from the picture, right? And then you can build that instrument. You mix it up with high grade and you sell it at very... Now, these processes move like that, move like that. So for the intermediate agents, for this to work, they had to get a contract signed, at least 500. All they wanted was a contract signed. They didn't check it, what these people could pay or not pay. That didn't matter. And... Um, Basically, you know, since they wanted 500, basically at the end, to make a long story very short, 15 million plus such contracts were signed according to the Federal Reserve. That's a lot of contract in a period that lasted maybe six or seven years and in its most concentrated way lasted four. The result has been, according to the Fed, though the data here as it shows here is from some intermediaries, uh, the result is that over 10 million people have been thrown out of their house. I, I don't mean people, I mean households thrown out of their houses. Now, to make this Pythagorean, you know Pythagoras, right? Material sort of, sort of 10 million households could be up to 30 million people. 
One household can have one, two, three, whatever people. And in fact, some of them were much larger because they had multiple households. So that my, and then I went to the Pythagorean moment. So I'm Dutch. My little country has 16 million inhabitants. It is as if a voice from above says, all right, we're going to try an exercise now. All of you out of the territory of the Netherlands. Where you go, I don't know, but out. And now we're going to repeat it. Most of those people are invisible. It's not that they have become incorporeal or so thin that you can't see them. No. They just don't exist on the radar screen. They don't exist. We have 10 cities. This is one of my expulsion sites, right? We have 10 cities that use, I find this almost too, too ironic to, to talk about, they had to mention, that are the same blue tents as the international uh, refugee system uses, you know, very neat blue. They're on the outskirts of cities. Well, you know, if you don't have anything to do there, you don't go there, you don't see it. We have neighborhoods, you must have seen the images, neighborhoods that are basically abandoned, maybe a few houses left standing. Uh, I mean, left occupied. People don't go there. So in what, I, what strikes me, and this is one of the issues that I pursue in this book, is in, that, in their full materiality, these neighborhoods, these tents full of cities, are invisible. So in that sense, they exist in the shadows of some other master category, which is economic recovery or whatever. You know, you can really pick your, your choices. Now, just in case you thought that this was only happening in the United States, which is always number one in terms of these types of things. No. I have the data in the book for the 27. It wasn't quite the 28 EU, huh? The 27 EU, and if I can see this... And so among the highest, do you, does this show? Yeah, very. So among the highest is Hungary. Every month you see this. Every year, I'm sorry, 207, 208, century. Germany, number two. We always think that everything is actually functioning very well in Germany. And actually, actually it is. But then there is that systemic edge, and beneath that we have impoverished elderly because they have cut their things. We have, we have uh, immigrants, of course, suffering, but we also have your average burger who thought they wanted a little house, and there they are. And the United Kingdom has the proud, is number four in the list of 27. But as you see at the bottom, the lowest foreclosures, you have the Netherlands, Denmark, there are a few more down here. Huh? The numbers are much Lower. But it shows you a possibility. Now, I should say a foreclosure is not the same as being expelled. Huh? But many of these are, in, in Hungary, we know that over a million households have been expelled from their homes. Because in Hungary, these are just three years that I'm showing you here. So, so these are, in many ways, invisible histories. You know, they are, they are troublesome. Now, I want to, to zero in on some other element that I think matters here. And that is... The bridge, remember finance capability has to invade other sectors, has to construct instruments that allow it to invade other sectors. The bridge, this is a simpler version that I want to give you now. The bridge is often some form of debt. Now I'm going to give you a simple, simple thing. Household debt. You don't have to look at all these numbers, don't worry. So I just want you to look at the title. This is from the IMF. I always go digging in the IMF files. It's chock full of very good data, by the way. You'll see what I mean. So here you are. The ratio of household credit 
to personal disposable income. Now, credit sounds very pretty. It's debt. It's not pretty. So, but, but, you know, this is the language. Now, look at this short, again, short brutal history, the same years as all of those foreclosures, year 2000 to year 2005. I mean, this continues a bit, but this, this is when it takes off. Look at Hungary, 11%, very, very reasonable. The United States at that time was already over 100% and was proud of that probably. <laughs> now, so Spain was 65, by the way, and it... It, uh, it really accelerated its death. But back to Hungary, only five years later, it is almost 40%. That tells you something, you know? Now, Spain, look at Spain, 65, again, I repeat it. On the other hand, it almost is funny. Germany, everybody has sort of, yeah, but not the Germans, by God. I, I, I'm sure there are a lot of Germans feel good. Don't feel bad when I say this. 70, 70, 70, 70. I mean, it's almost comic, you know? But... <laughs> Now, so then I asked myself, who owns that household debt? Because if a little local bank owns your, your debt, then your little interest payments will recirculate in that town, so to say. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. But, but if a big foreign bank owns it, chances are it does not recirculate. So this is the model for all franchises, by the way, that, you know, it will always take out more than it is giving. So whatever the local consumption capacity, it takes out a bit, a bit or a lot, instead of recirculating. It really weakens local economies. In some ways, franchises can also be very good, you know, but still, mostly they are a problem, I would say. Now then I asked, so who owns this debt? The data is for 205, by the end of 205, stores 206. Hungary, 40% owned by foreign banks. That's not great, you understand, right? So anyhow, I, I have much more if anybody is interested. At the other end of this story is the new invented, invented market, which sets a bottom price, uh, which is none of those properties really are worth, not the, the bottom price. Mostly the bottom price is not operational, but it is a bottom price. And in London, the, the basic going price, or in New York, it's 100 million for properties that are not worth it. Now, the main nationalities, the, the national, the, those are the main nationalities. As you can see, they vary very nicely. Uh, now, this, this is, a, is a market that operates in about 20 cities. It is spreading. Huh? So it actually valorizes, you know, and I mean it in the active sense, not values as it exists, and I'm now going to... No, makes value out of urban land. And I argue that, that this is the buying of urban land. How do you buy urban land? You buy it in the form of houses and buildings. Office buildings are the other part, right? And moreover, when you buy, when you buy land and you, you buy a half a block, uh, you, you, you simplify urban space if you then build a Mac mansion. Or if you buy a whole bunch of little streets, space, etc., and then you make a big shopping mall, you have privatized what was, you know. But deep inside, deep, deep in, I should be moving, <coughs> here are some others. <coughs> As you see, Dubai, very different main nationalities. But if you, um, you know, th these are all things, so, so deep for me lies this logic of, this is the buying of urban land. 
And the Financial Times did a very interesting uh, little bit of research where it looked at Oxford and at London, how much of it is foreign-owned in both places. And one effect has been to displace sort of the modest middle class, you know, some professors, academics, etc., and, and, you know, professionals who used to think that I can live in London. Well, it's more difficult. Now, here is one little item that I would like to point out because I think, I think this is almost cute. So, okay, Shanghai, the world seems to be buying the nationalities in Shanghai, right? Hong Kong. Look at the difference in price. Hong Kong, the main buyers, mainland Chinese. I think that is interesting, but I don't think anybody else seems to think <laughs> that is interesting here. Anyhow, uh, uh, so now, here are a few more curves. I am looking at a very big clock because there is a bit more stuff. So these are all curves that I, I, you know, I like to take all these data and then just produce one line that tells a story, so to say. So look at this story. By the way, so this is, a, this is in billions. Huh? It's not that nothing was happening here. It is just that it was less than a billion, just in case you were wondering, my God, nothing was happening? <laughs> no. Look how it goes up, up. Then it sinks. This is the crisis. For them, it lasts for about half an hour, okay? I exaggerate. It's more like two years. And then it goes up further than before the crisis. Now, I don't know if you've seen the recent report that came out for the UK. Richer, they have a whole list of names, by the way. They have 100 names if you wanted to look at them. I thought that was a bit too vulgar to give you some of those names. <laughs> but I have them. So... So, so they also, the, the top rich, they are richer, much richer than they were, you know, maybe 15 years ago. And we see this, actually, because I've been looking at crises for a while, after each crisis, so the, the financial crises, here's corporate assets, just they didn't even notice that a crisis happened, do you understand? I mean, I find this extraordinary, frankly. Now, then you look at our states, poor thingies, they all... I mean, there are some that are doing amazingly well, agreed. But look at Germany again. Germany, 13%. This is central government debt, 30% of GDP, etc. And and then uh, it has gone, where is Germany here? And then it is, where is it? 44. See, all of these. Now, when I think... Can our states do what they did after World War II, which was rebuilt whole, you know, urban areas with all facilities good, many of them would not be able to. So a question, I'm not going to answer that question here, but the question is, why are all our states getting poorer? Now, we know some tax evasion, etc. you know, there are a whole series of reasons, but there are also, I think, some deeper reasons that are at work here. Now, I wanted to show you a couple of graphs here, which... Um, which to me, that this is one of the most beautiful graphs. When a graph has a very powerful shape, to me it becomes beautiful. I realize the slide is not very beautiful, but, but so look at this. This is almost 100 years. In fact, it ends. This, this is a very weak pointer. I keep losing it. But anyhow, you see what I mean? Pardon? That's right. So it, but it actually goes on till, till the last census, the 2010 census. This is the share of total income that the top 10% of earners, this, this does not include uh, uh, the wealth that they may also have. This is just earnings, have income. And they sort of reach 47% of all income generated. Then this sharp fall 
the adorable decades of the Keynesian period, right? This tells you by inference, not directly, that what they lost, <laughs> which wasn't that much, by the way, huh? it's still a very robust little share down that they have, but that was gained by the middle class, and you know, and a prosperous working class. Look, comes 1987, I was writing my Global City book in this period, and I was arguing, I am detecting trends, and nobody accepted my argument at that point. But anyhow, look, it goes sharp up, and then, in fact, it moves up. I hope people are following what I'm saying, right? Now, here's a... Oopsie. Here's another version of it, which is the top 1%. Now, this is the U.S. I should have... I, this is the U.S. The top 1% in these, you know, from 79 till, again, 2010, gains a lot. Then there is, you know, the second sort of pressure law. But the bottom 40% barely gain anything. Now, what was interesting is that if you look at the visual order of our cities, think gentrification, what you saw was new, beautiful, luxury, etc. So when I was making my argument, I was saying, you know what? We're going into a mode of sharp inequality, also in New York City. All that people could see was this visual order, physical, material, visual order that talked the language of prosperity. You also had that here in London. And in fact, a lot of people did gain a lot, but then a lot didn't gain anything. I, I, I think these are all interesting stories. Right now, the latest census shows that half of people in New York are poor at poverty level or below poverty level. In London, you know, London is a bit that way, but it's a bit different. Again, we cannot confuse. Now, signal to me, Ricky, how much more time? I don't have, I'm running out of time, right? Ten minutes, wow. So I was just going to show you some interesting trends, which what I do in this book a lot is to try to argue that Greece, Spain, Italy, Portugal are not these aberrations. In fact, I have a whole series of things that show that many countries in the euro follow the same curve uh, on a whole variety of var variables, only less sharp, even Germany. You know, Germany, again, because Germany has been admired. I don't have anything against Germany. I love Germany. But uh, so, so look at this. So this, the high, this is male involuntary part-time workers. So this, this is what this counts, okay? And it shows a massive increase from 2000 to 2012. The highest is the United States, the sharpest. Then there is Spain, etc. They're all sharp. But if you look at the whole of Europe, all the countries, that is a pattern with very few exceptions. So I'm trying to make an argument also that we're dealing with much deeper trends than just the crises of these particular countries. Uh, this is out migration from Spain, etc. I was going to talk a bit about migration, but I'm going to pass that. I am going to move... Move, 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 move. This is not elegant. So, in the shadows of... So, one of the, the, uh, the analytic tactics was to ask, when I invoke a powerful category, what don't I see? And so, urbanization is one of these categories that is beginning to irritate me a lot because it is used in such a mindless way. You know, any politician, I hope none of those politicians are here because otherwise I know I am offending you, who don't know anything about cities, but will say most of the people are becoming urbanized, you know, which is on the one hand very sympathetic. My God, you know, they're talking cities. But on the other hand, you know, so I, 
I then decide to see, okay, what don't I see when I invoke this category, urbanization, right? And so again, extreme, I'm going for an extreme condition. And one of the things I don't see is a whole series of land grabs that are happening. Now, very short, very quickly, land grabs are an old history, right? King Leopold said, let me go by Congo. He did, etc. You know, it's an old history in the West, certainly. But, at, you know, it bubbles up and down, up and down, up and down. What we see in 206, again, I'm very interested when the curve changes shape. It tells me something. What we see is a rapid acceleration. Suddenly the curve goes up like that. Now, we know from Freedom of Information Act uh, requests uh, accessing the Federal Reserve, our central bank data, that among the main buyers of land in 206, before the crisis formally explodes, there was a period of four or five months in 206 when the main buyers, those that actually shape that curve, that curve going up, are hedge banks, hedge funds, and financial firms. So Goldman Sachs buys land absolutely, in, in Russia, J.P. Morgan, and the hedge funds, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, it's a short period where you actually can see that curve going down, but there are other actors also buying. Um, and so very quickly, what, this is a, we are a, there is a sort of a global network called Land Matrix, maybe some of you know it, which does some of the best data gathering. This measure of 220 million in those five years uh, includes only properties that are more than 200 hectares. So and you have quite a bit of buying of land in Europe also, but that does not get counted as much because often they are smaller. Now here is just to give you a quick sense. Just look at the yellow. Huh? Africa is the main uh, destination for buyers. And we're talking about 15 governments and, um, and, um, and about 100 firms. And the point here for me is when this type of land is bought, you know, you are, and these, these properties that I buy, these are like 2 million hectares to grow, I don't know what, palm or soy. What happens? Well, you evict faunas, floras. You push out, you evict rural economies, you know, village economies, genealogies of meaning, complexities, histories, etc., etc. The little question that I ask in terms of the, in the shadows of urbanization, where do those people go? Well, they go to cities. So nowadays, when I think growth of cities, urbanization, one variable, I emphasize it's only one, is also this leaving the land, being expelled from the land, if you add to this the environmental destruction, which is creating its own expulsions. Another interesting point that adds to this push effect is that most of it is, um, is, for, uh, is for industrial crops. When you grow industrial crops, you can put all the, the fertilizers, the pesticides that you want, you actually really poison the water. So even if you have small farms around, they are also finished. It also has meant that in areas where we long had hunger, I'm sorry, we long had poverty, but did not have hunger, we now also have hunger, like in Brazil and in Argentina. There was poverty in these rural areas. But people always could sort of, because they were growing black beans, let's say, that they could also eat. Finally, the other story is the story of water grabs. And that one that stands out, since you probably can't read it, that's Indonesia. That is just, and this is also, there are, again, quite a few firms that are doing, that are grabbing water. And of course, the Nestle's with their water bottles. Oh, this is glass. Okay, I don't know where this comes from. But anyhow, 
you know, we are also contributing through consumption to this. Now, I have to finish, and so I just wanted to very quickly end up with, I have a, the longest chapter in this book is actually this chapter, which is called Debt, Water, Dead Land. And my argument, I already gave you some hint at the beginning that something has changed also in the capacity of the biosphere to sort of to heal what we destroy. And, um, and well, let me just show you a few. So land area with hot, very hot. You know, these are all, I, don't, I hope that you can see. For instance, in areas that we think of as bread baskets of the world, like the United States Midwest, you have vast patches of land that are very, very hot. And year after year, and that means that they are dying, actually. Uh, the, the scientists have also, you know, experts, whatever, biologists, mixtures of knowledge, have gathered uh, information and established that we have it over 400 coastal areas, waters in coastal areas that are dead. No oxygen, there is no movement. So... And so my, in, my, in my mind, I want to generate a map, I'm actually working at it, that contains within it dead land, dead water. Right now, we look at our maps. Let's say a dramatic example that you all know, the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea was once the fourth largest freshwater lake in the world. Now it is down, just in the last 25 years, to 10% of its original. Now, the map still shows, your average map that we, t we give to children in school, etc., shows the Aral Sea like it is in its full old splendor. So I am calling for making maps that actually show everything that is dead because some of that dead land and dead water is not going to recover anytime soon. And this global scale-up that we have where sites what you might think of as innocent the Alps in Switzerland, the permafrost in the Arctic, they did not contribute to what is now destroying them. And of course, as you all know, the methane that is in the permafrost of the Arctic is far stronger than any of the methanes we have known thus far. So we are talking serious stuff. So also this, this sort of, this notion that the blowback, huh, the way it, it's, it's, it can hit anywhere. So there is something totally out of control in this. I have several of these lines that I, that I love. This is all kinds of different measures. They disagree. You know, the scientists, academics like to disagree about very, but they all go in the same direction. So that is what I'm capturing here. And this is, by the way, <laughs> this is the difference that it would make in terms of damage that we're doing if we implemented all existing rules. It's kindergarten. You know? No, I don't want to offend kindergarten. But this is a little difference. It's, it's nothing. It's a joke. So that then brings me back to, to and I, I'll end here. I will not deal with, well, um, that brings me back to, to a concept, which is um, that I think that when you look at the interstate system, the way they are dealing with it, they're dealing in this narrow little world, and they're dealing as national states fighting with each other for the right, of course, to carbon production, so it's very destructive. But there is something, something much deeper happening for me, which is a, what I think of as conceptually subterranean trends that are cutting across uh, these existing huge categories, containers like countries, 
or global north, global south, etc. Deserts, rivers, oceans. They are cutting across. And that is why this chapter on the environment was the one that I got me most going, because there I could really see. So I have, the, I have many case studies, and one of them is the biggest nickel production factory in, uh, in the world is in Norilsk, northern Russia. Starts out as a gulag. It's definitely a communist history, if you want, eh? a development. And then I take uh, big gold mines in Montana, deeply capped old mines, old histories, long, I mean, histories of, you know, 50 years. Uh, very capitalist history, avoiding the law and etc. and the profit. And so, and both are extremely destructive. And so I stand back and I ask, what matters more, that one is in a communist country with a communist history or quasi-communist country and the other one is in a capitalist situation? No. What matters at ground level is the capacity to destroy <laughs> that they have. And so I argue actually for a de-theorizing to bring us back to ground level and not to see all of these geopolitical divisions. They, they count. But we also need that other mode of doing research. I'm going to end with one final slide here. Unstable meanings. This is really about visible and invisible. Who, can I ask you, the first time I ask you to respond, who has seen this map before? Wow. Okay, this map exists since 2010. I've been showing it since 2010. It's in the public domain, by the way. It is a 10,000 buildings, most of which are private. Oh, the fat listing disappeared. Okay. They're mostly private, and they are the ones engaging in full-time gathering of data about all our acts of communication, including probably some of you, huh? because it is truly a transnational project. Now, people, before Mr. Snowden, people could not relate to this map. This is strong evidence. This was produced by the Washington Post, etc., with a whole theme of... After Mr. Snowden, they could relate to it. They understood what this means. And that I find interesting. You know, that now I showed them that they saw dead rock, red dots. But still, now they understand. Now they can see the full meaning of it. That is full-time data gathering. And so that to me is a kind of little, little lesson that the, on this question of the visible and the invisible, how do we make those extreme conditions that are so far from our daily lives, how do we make them visible if even in their full materiality we have a hard time seeing them or relating to them? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And Ash, if you go straight up and um, give us your thoughts, and he will then ask you some questions. So I will. Oh, right, yeah, right. Yeah, so, you know, oh, focused. I can finish my lecture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, you'll find a way. <laughs> Thank you very much, and uh, um, what a wonderful talk. Uh, my comments are really about the book, but the, 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 I think the lecture has very nicely summarized. Um, a good part of the book, and I want to just begin by saying that I was completely captivated by the book, and indeed your lecture too, and so those of you who are hesitating about buying the book, don't hesitate, just buy it, it's, it's, it's really worth it. Isn't he wonderful? The, the, well, I need a cut. Huh? Um, I think the, 
the book is wonderful because for, for many reasons. But one of the reasons is that I've yet to see such a chillingly lucid and quite brilliant account of the ontology of expulsion today. I mean, you, you, in this book, you bring together the different processes of expulsion stroke exclusion, which uh, in, in, a, in a wonderful way, which I've not seen elsewhere. Um, so Saskia tells us about these processes of, in her own language, savage sorting, um, which have a hidden machinic quality to them. And are really quite are beyond uh, obvious uh, visible, visible categories or the pre-givens of social theory. And she also then shows that these processes of savage sorting leave behind them, and we, we got a sense of this today in the lecture, a, a whole series of, a swathe of expulsions of people, places, and nature. And today, actually, in very large numbers, uh, these expulsions. So, so we need to be very careful about what's going on in the world. But ironically, and I think she touches on this in the book too, these expulsions are not noted as expulsions and they're often seen as the natural order of things, almost necessary for a new logic of, in my language, a new logic of capital accumulation. So just to begin, I think the book is a superb synthesis of things on the edge, but in very large numbers. These are not minor developments, of, uh, to say the very least. So my comments really are of a kind of bookend nature. At one end, I want to ask some questions about whether we can name with, with, with confidence and clarity the, uh, the deep process at work. And I don't mean deeper processes, but, and I'll come to this in a minute. And then secondly, at the other end of the shelf, bookshelf, um, what, what can be done to, to reverse the appalling outcomes that, that you describe in the book. So just turning to the, to the first uh, issue that I wanted to touch upon, um, which is turning to the character of the savage sorting that you describe. Uh, my question is this. Is there a singular logic behind the, su the various subterranean, five or six subterranean trends that you tackle in the book? The subterranean trend of brinkmanship with land and nature or the subterranean trend leading to the permanent exclusion of the many from housing, welfare, economic participation, as we saw today. And it's this uh, gesturing towards a singular logic is implied in the book, but I think it, it's done with a measure of studied ambivalence in the book, and I, and I want to see why that's the case. So on the one hand, uh, in the book, you speak of a, a common operational complexity Mm -hmm. behind all the subterranean trends. The, the hybrid nature of the coalitions involved, these combinations between elites and software technologies, network configurations, and, and, and the givens of uh, state and legal uh, dominant rulings today. So it, what I get from the book is that at one level you're saying that what we have today is a certain... Um, ontological complexity made up of compositional variety and, in my language, again, relational ambiguity mm. that makes for a, a very deep form of ontological uncertainty. 
and one where the uncertainty in the organization of life itself, as we know it, produces centripetal, uh, uh, so, um, centripetal returns. The few get the more, and, and, and the more are left out, outside of the spectrum. So my first question really is that, have I got this part of the book right? That, that, that what you're t- trying to gesture towards is that the rise of a new mechanosphere of economic organization and, and regulation that's extremely volatile. Um, but paradoxically, if it is designed, it is designed for expulsion. Mm. Um, if that's the case, if, I got, if I've got this right, then what is it that makes ontological complexity um, more malign than benign? The number of people who work on complexity theory, the, operation, the, the workings of uh, complex systems, who often will say, well, actually, complexity is a good thing. Yeah? The, the more pluralism you have, the more benign outcomes you rule into the, the game itself. But then, on the other hand, um, Saskia also links these savage sortings, these expulsions, to the extremes of neoliberalism. The, the, to, there's a part in the book where she talks about the displacement, and we saw some data on this today, the displacement of a very short period of experimentation in, in Western society especially with social democracy, to engineer fairness, uh, distributive justice, um, and that, that's been di- re- displaced by a new logic of, and, and she uses this phrase very nicely in the book, she calls it a new logic of unrestrained profit maximization. So here, the expulsions, um, <coughs> I take it from the book, in all their manifestations, whether it's land, nature, housing, poverty, unemployment, are the symptoms of uh, state-aided and technology-aided corporate adventurism, today freed from all kinds uh, of democratic, social, and environmental audit. Uh, David Harvey called it accumulation by dispossession, you use a different kind of a language. And so my first question to you is that, I mean, I'm curious to know where your emphasis lies in naming the logic of this beast that's rapidly growing. Um, Does your emphasis fall on, if you like, compositional questions, or does your emphasis fall on the extreme neoliberal nature of, of of the organization, the economy today? And whether then if you see a connection between, on the one hand, systemic complexity that produces expulsions daily, and on the other hand, um, this new regime of corporate adventurism. So just a thought. I wonder if the former systemic complexity is a hesitant settlement, a groping towards the latter, that in a sense, um, advanced neoliberalism will soon find for itself a systemic ontological complexity which will look much simpler than the processes you describe. So that's the first um, kind of set of questions. But then move, moving to the opposite. Well, these are questions for all of us, actually. 
And then moving to the opposite bookend, um, you know, how, how we encapsulate, in my view, this, this logic of expulsion has a very clear bearing on the nature and the possibility of redress, which I hope will be the sequel um, to this book. So where, for example, would the emphasis on ontological complexity take us in addressing systemic tendencies favoring expulsion? So would it take us towards, would your political and policy case press towards the plural economy so that the advantages of economic variety and what David Stark calls heterarchy can be built into the system? Would your focus on ontological complexity press towards building many more circuit breakers in the organization of the economy? For example, less algorithmic dependence, more financial and corporate dismantlement, tighter rules of transactioning, slowed slow down completion of contracts. One of the big problems today is that contracts are completed before you can blink your eyelids. Perhaps absolute limits to ownership, so that in total, malign network amplifications somehow are prevented because a whole series of circuit breakers have been introduced in the regulation of the economy. Perhaps even would you gesture towards art forms that are capable of exposing the machinery of the predatory formations so that the levers that need to be pulled are then made visible. Alternatively, does the language of unrestrained profiteering, or let's call it accumulation by savage sorting, to use your language, would that point us in a very different political and policy direction? Um, does it, for example, um, uh, commend uh, a return to the post-Keynesian settlement? Um, let's call it a vamped-up transnational consensus around the precepts of universal welfare, managed economy, and democratic audit, if it's not too late? Or is this option of an international post-Keynesian settlement, is this ruled out now, in your view, indeed by the hidden levers that you speak of, and which presumably uh, killed off the very small moment of Keynesian revival after 2008. Alternatively, and I'm coming to an end now, Ricky, um, does the diagnostic of, of unrestrained profiteering perhaps vindicate a counter-politics of insurgency and disengagement in the way of the tactics of the 99%, so that a new post-capitalist order forms hesitantly ground up, um, a politics which for the moment offers very few tangible conversions, if you like, from occupy to uh, economic uh, reward, and a politics which has largely been ignored, both by the mainstream left and the right, but might prove to be more effective in the spaces where, as you say in your book, where, where corporate power comes together um, and also in those spaces where the exclusions of corporate power are most visible, and that is our global cities. So do you imagine um, 
um, a, a, a kind of almost a way forward by default is a, is a kind of revolution of the cities. Right, right. Um, so again, I'm curious to know here where your thinking would go. You know, whether your reforms point towards doing something about systemic uncertainty or actually naming the beast as the, the kind of excessive neoliberal beast which requires a, a different kind of yeah. redress. And I think I'll stop wow. there with you. <laughs> well, I must say that, that these were extraordinary comments, Ash, and I need that text. <laughs> It's not typed up, I see. But, you know, you're really, you, you are really writing volume two. <laughs> because th- this whole book, as I said, was the zone before method. This is me mapping all kinds of things. The, the truth is that I don't have clear answers to every issue that you raised, but the issues themselves are important to raise, and there really is a great text in there, I must say. Um, now, let me just give a, a semblance of an answer and make it not too long. So, so one of the questions that I ask myself in the territory book is, um, which I think is my best book, uh, is how does change happen in complex systems? And my answer is that, or, you know, it took me a lot of work, a lot of historiographic incursion, so to say. Um, and my answer was that, that, that complex systems don't just disappear. You know, it's not erasure. But that what happens is that certain capabilities that they develop jump organizing logics. So, for instance, I argued this for the passage from uh, the divine king, the divine authority of the king being something that had to be made for people to accept it, for systems to develop, etc. That when we move to the to the sovereign, uh, the, the, what do we call it? Your, your, our, not, not, what do you call it when it's non-divine? Your, the secular. Uh, the secular sovereign state, what we're actually seeing, which presumes also a lot of authority that is a legitimate authority. You can ask yourself, Dworkin did for 20 years, I think, where does that legitimacy come from? And I argue that actually what we saw was the capacity attributed to the divine actually, which becomes a capability for organizing a complex system, for demanding respect, actually jumps organizing logics and becomes that respected, accepted uh, secular authority of the sovereign. Uh, And so a bit in this book, what I'm thinking is I'm sort of searching for capability. So I also search and, and, and ask, how can they jump organizing logics? So one thing that I don't assume, presume, or project is that everything that is now is going to be erased. I don't believe that history has moved that way, right? So, so, um, so that then frees me up from all kinds of things of that, that in, in the end I can argue this will stay. Look at these old London buildings, right? that are now inhabited with completely different functions. That would be a very elementary example of what I'm saying. Now that then does raise a couple of questions as to how I begin to address some of the issues that you raise, because I have thought about it. And so one of them is, do the powerless make history or histories? 
and and again in the territory book I examined that question at length and, and I find that yes they do but with temporalities that are much longer than those of power so then the question operational question for me in this with this amount of material is what are the histories in the making and in that sense I see the Occupy movement not just as a flare-up but as a kind of mobilizing that enabled them to produce a certain capability, which is today a very rare capability, which is making the social. And the social is what, you know that this is my little project, right? And the social is what we have lost. We, the middle classes, were consumers. Elites, basically, to a very large extent, are consumers. The, the poor, for survival, they learn how to make the social. They're living in slums. They've got to develop certain capacities. So I argue that the Occupy movement actually developed. And then I go, and that, and that this first thing that flares up, it flares up, recurs with particular features, different genealogies of meaning in each case. You know, that it's not that it will flare up again, necessarily in New York, for instance. No, but it is one point in a trajectory. And so I think of the civil rights movements in the United States, the women's movements just about anywhere. Boy, were they long, slow histories with one defeat after the other, destructions of households, of careers, of lives, etc. So I do think that the acceleration is on, though. Eh, that. Now, the second point, I think the big challenge is not the elites, but these predatory formations that I so gently call them, huh? And, and what does not help us, this type of economic cleansing that our standard measures are producing. Huh? So that we, we don't see all kinds of things that are happening in the space of the economy because they're not counted. So then I sort of begin to see what, what capabilities need to be developed there. We have a lot of critical economists, including the Frenchman you know, who delivered, who did the homework <clears throat> 15 years in the archives, which is why the American economists who are critics and are critics of you know, inequality, etc., they loved him. He did their homework. Let's remember that. 15 years in the archives. I thought it was 10. It was 15. So he actually gave us a datum. You know what? Without policy, without state intervention, without etc., we are not going to change anything. <clears throat> but we all know that that's not enough either. So I don't know if, if I'm beginning to answer. I really have to read your text. It was far too complex. But the other thing for me is this curve effect. You know, at what point does quality, process, etc., A, actually switch valence? And we may not know it. So I think what happens when the Glass-Steagall Act is killed by President Clinton, Larry Summers, etc., they did much more than kill an old act. They actually started, enabled a whole new trajectory for finance, you know. Now, that tells us, that tells us an interesting little story, which is that law can make a difference. You know, now today, the dark pools, all that stuff that I showed, you know, we have a wild west to move back to a zone that we can control, I don't know. Final observation that, again, comes from most of my territory book, that when you, really, when you really look carefully at how systems of power come to an end, and when you think about it, you know, you have heard me say that. What I like always is to say that the city is a complex but incomplete system and in that sense has outlived many other systems. No kingdom has lasted for. I mean, the Catholic Church has an incredibly long life. I mean, but that's also it kept kept reinventing itself. It's open source, I think. Um, so, so you know, 
these systems of power do bring themselves down. This last crisis, as we many of us think, was an opportunity. But when the United States, again, we found out through Freedom of Information Act, put actually $7 trillion to the disposal of a globing, global banking elite, not the $320 billion that went through the Congress and hence were a public debate and public moment, ah, should we, should we not? Am I too long? Yes, I'm too long. <laughs> I grew up in Argentina. We like to talk. So... Um, you know, the seven trillion, well, that made a lot of difference because that was real cash. The multiplier effect of that is enormous. And of course, they kept it in the bank because then they could do speculative things and didn't give any loans. So there are many, when I look at what happened, there are many points of intervention. But I do think that, as I said, the, the challenge are these predatory formations, technical systems, law systems, elites, etc., and they're working together, and I shut up. <laughs> do you want to just come back on that? No. We have, um, I told you we'd be coming up to time, but let's have maybe three questions. Can you be brief, because you're not Argentinian? Um, and can you tell us to stand up, wait for the microphone, and please ask a question, and don't make a long statement. Okay. So, uh, any questions? I can see any hands up. Gentleman in the middle there. Anyone else? Can I see someone? Can we have the microphone there go are two over, over there? there yeah. And for symmetry, is there anyone on this side? No, you're not allowed. No family questions. <laughs> That's my son, <laughs> a radical artist okay. who has for, his own ideas about it. <laughs> first question. Tell us who you are, please. My name is Roman. I'm not a student here. I'm a student, I was a student at Newcastle University. Uh, my question is about states. If states are so broke, what power do they have to change this? I wait to answer. Let's that. wait. Let's have a so gentleman over there. Yeah. Yes, mine is about your your. Tell state. us who you are. Do you mind? Can you stand oh. up? It just helps. So. Oh, I'd rather sit down. It's a big space. Uh, yes, such an inspiring um, delivery by both speakers. I was quite moved by it. Oh, but I'll just say that my my issue is the you mentioned geopolitical capacity to destroy and in extreme conditions like we've had since 2007 in terms of the economic disasters. Um, what, I would like to, a quick um, thing about the, the two speakers to explain how, despite all this chaos, we can make change happen in terms of the positive aspects to help humanity. Thank you. And is there a question on this side? If not, we'll go two rows down. <coughs> White shirt, yeah? Okay, and one up at the top there, and then we'll stop with the um, question. Hi, my name's Jacob. I'm a master's student at UCL. Um, I was wondering what you make of high-frequency high trading, because obviously a lot of that trading you were talking about is done at the speed of light. It's seconds. It's simple algorithms created by those um, physicists. Sorry. Not uh, all the trade. Huh? High-frequency trading is a specific kind of trading. Yeah, but I was just wondering... Machines how, do it. Yeah, but yeah. Those code, yeah. the code is already written by humans to begin yeah. with. I was just wondering what you kind of, how you yeah. think that fits into the whole massive uncertainty that is created by these problems. Thank you. Can we take one, one more, Saskia, so maybe you can answer? Yes, yeah, over there. Can you tell us who you are, please. I, uh, my name's Roxanne. Um, I work in local government. I was interested uh, in 
um, what you were saying about the Occupy movements, and there are quite a lot of civil society organisations and movements in the UK at the moment, such as Citizens UK, Fairness Commissions seem to be springing up and organising locally um, to intervene in local economies. And I wonder if um, you know if you can think of any other good examples. What you what you think of these emerging organisations and movements across the UK? Excellent. Thank you. Shall I go? Yep. Okay. The first question was on the state. So I, and what I think about the state. So I think of the state as a very complex capability, and its complexity resides in the fact that it has to negotiate multiple logics, unlike the richest firm, which will tend to have a single logic, operational. So when they show you those lists, you know, after state such, the biggest actors are firms, I think that is not helpful. So I think that we need states. Secondly, in my particular view, one that I am criticized very often for, I argue that ironically, our states, a working state, uh, they have learned how to be international. The, big st the rich states have learned so in, in, to, to support corporate, the corporate economy, finance. So my question is, are those capabilities that they have developed to be international to support sectors that didn't really need their support that much, uh, can they jump organizing logics and become, and that would be part of, and become capabilities geared towards different types of the international, forms of the international, global hunger, global climate, etc. And I hope that yes. Now, the second question, in other words, the state, I think we cannot throw the state out of the window. We have made it collectively. The, the, there has been a truly a decay of the state, partly because deregulation and privatization have hollowed out legislatures. Legislatures is where we, the citizens, have legal standing. We have very little legal standing vis-a-vis -vis the executive branch of government. So our legislatures are out to lunch mostly. I mean, the United States must be one of the worst, you know, but uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have great individuals in there also. Now, you asked a very uh, complex question that I am partly answering through these elements. Can the state regear its interests? The state about humanity, etc. Humanity is a big category. I, I often have trouble with that a bit. Um, but I think we must, there is work to be done. And we must, I am into detecting all these trajectories, such as which the last speaker brought up there, the last questioner, I want them, but then they need to be positioned. You know, I need to sort that kind of stuff out, so I really care. Um, now, high-frequency trading. I mean, there is a lot of, of uh, pretty accelerated frequency trading in, in the stock markets, etc. But then we have, in the last few years, we all know how it was discovered, right? The big warehouse. Hong Kong, etc. Very interesting. All these machines. And now the debate has changed again because the notion now is that that is cheating. Because these high-frequency trades detect flaws, shortcomings, openings, possibilities, which the actual guided trade, insofar as there are algorithms doing it, uh, created by people. You know, so this is all a very interesting stuff. But the story, what I find one of the most interesting stories in there is the fact that when the speed is such friction of distance reemerges, and you want to put those warehouses full of the big machines right next to, you know, the stock markets, etc., because they raid the stock markets partly. I mean, that's what they do. They go where the stock market trading didn't go, and poof, and they go. And also the private networks, is, that's yet another matter, but anyhow. So um, now, I'm just going now to the... Um, 
Who mentioned civil society organization? Was that you? Yes, it was you, right. So I think I've sort of addressed, or have I missed something? I talked about the state, right? Yes. So I, what you described to me is very important because I really, first I think that we have to bring in a temporal dimension that is highly variable um, into this kind of process of reivindications, of readjustments, etc. And I do think that the, the Occupy movements have became one of the more visible little elements in a much larger zone of actions and efforts. Having said all of what I said in my various answers, we have, and that was also one of your big questions, we have a massive challenge. And I think that, that uh, we need some very radical interventions. We need to have working states that have broad agendas. We need the state. We, there is so much work to be done that it is shocking. So I still think right now that this is a very unstable period. And I am afraid that there's going to be quite a bit more suffering before we... Now, in the meantime, most of us will have reasonable lives. You know, that is the other thing. So this is a tough one. I'm looking at very extreme conditions as a window onto a potentially larger logic that might, because it is creeping, the last 20 years have shown us sort of a creeping capacity of destruction in some of these logics. Um, you wanted to answer that? I think what we don't want to do is um, chew into the precious time of signing books and possibly uh, selling them. So I think uh, now that it's just after 8 o'clock, I want to uh, do two things. First of all, Ash, thank you for very much helping us understand some of the complexities of Ash. Obviously, I hope that this is the, the continuation of collaborative work between Cambridge and the LSE, which will continue. And uh, obviously, thank you enormously to Saskia for opening up her book and her mind to us once again at the LSE. Thank you. Yes.